Hello everyone, I'm Mark Tomasetti, back with you for our March edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. First off, I want to thank everyone for the feedback we received on last month's podcast, Rise of the Valkyrie. The XB-70 truly was an amazing aircraft, and I am glad you enjoyed getting to hear a little bit of what it was like to fly her from test pilot Al White. That extract from the SCTP Foundation's Oral History Archive is one of many, and I hope to share more of those with you in future episodes. So on to this week in aviation history. Let's go all the way back to the 8th of March, 1910, when the Aero Club de France issued Pilot Aviature License Number 36 to Baroness de la Roche, making her the first woman to become licensed as an airplane pilot. Skipping ahead to March of 1957, a United States Navy non-rigid airship, Goodyear ZPG-2, departed Boston, Massachusetts on the 4th of March on a long-distance flight to demonstrate the capabilities of a modern, lighter-than-air military blimp. That airship had been involved in cold-weather testing and had been given the nickname Snowbird. She was under the command of Commander Jack Reed Hunt, United States Naval Reserve, a 15-year veteran of airship operations. There were two additional pilots, three navigators, and seven more Navy crew members. Also on board the airship was a civilian flight engineer, Mr. Edgar Moore, a Goodyear Aircraft Corporation field representative. Snowbird headed east across the Atlantic Ocean, passing north of the Azores on the 7th of March. At this point, the airship had burned off enough fuel that it was light enough to cruise on one engine, allowing a much greater range. A lateral drive shaft between engines allowed both propellers to continue turning. Later that day, the blimp reached the west coast of Portugal, completing the first Atlantic crossing by a lighter-than-aircraft in 12 years. Snowbird then turned south, heading for Casablanca on the west coast of North Africa, which it reached on the morning of March 8th. Continuing further south along the African coast, before turning west to recross the Atlantic, past the Canary and Cape Verde Islands, and then onward to the Virgin Islands. She arrived back in the United States, making landfall at Miami Beach on the afternoon of 14 March. A radio message was sent to the crew of the Snowbird by Admiral Arlie Burke, then Chief of Naval Operations. Heartiest congratulations on establishing a new world endurance record for airships. Your untiring efforts and devotion are most commendable. This flight demonstrates an increased ASW and AEW capability and other achievements, which serve to demonstrate a continuing search for technological advances by the U.S. Navy. Well done. Not finished with its voyage, the airship next headed to the Dry Tortugas at the far western end of the Florida Keys and finally landed at NAS Key West, Florida on the 15th of March. The Snowbird had traveled nearly 10,000 miles without landing or refueling, and the Federation Aeronautique Internationale lists this as the longest recorded airship flight. It exceeded the distance record set formerly by Graf Zeppelin flying from Germany to Japan in 1929. From takeoff at Boston to landing in Key West, the total duration of the flight was 264 hours and 14 minutes. And you can still see the control car from the gondola of the Snowbird at the Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, Florida. Like the U.S. Air Force Museum in Ohio, this is another great place to add to your future travel plans if you are an aviation buff. You know, we have talked about several record-setting and first-of events in this aviation history segment of our podcast. And in many cases, those have occurred during the flight testing of aircraft. In a future episode, let's talk about setting records and demonstration flights. If you have a story about setting a record or some great capability demonstration you are a part of, contact us and maybe you can share that on an upcoming podcast. 
Now, in the January podcast, I talked about an opportunity I had to put some flight test skills to use in a practical, real-world example of a wild animal encounter. Well, two weeks ago, I had another. I owned a 1973 Plymouth Cuda, a classic muscle car, and I had noticed that the steering was becoming looser with more free play noticeable in the steering wheel. And I was taking it into my local mechanic for some other work, and I was going to have him take a look at that. On the way, I got into a classic PIO, or pilot-induced oscillation, at about 50 miles per hour. Now, if you're not familiar with pilot-induced oscillations, let me explain, and I'll explain it in terms of how it happened in the car that day. I'm driving along, and I start to make a lane change to get over to the left. I put some left turn into the wheel, and nothing really happens. So I put a little bit more, and then all of a sudden, the car starts going left more than I wanted. So I rapidly put some right turn into the wheel to try and correct it. Nothing happens. I put a little bit more, and it starts going to the right way more than I want it. And so you can see we go back and forth with this oscillating maneuver. Not pleasant in a car on the road, and even worse in an airplane flying along at high speed. Now, almost without thinking about it, I reduced the speed, got out of the loop, which means I stopped making those big inputs, and looked to capture a straight track once again. It worked, and from that point forward, I made cautious, deliberate inputs so as to avoid another bout of PIO. Now, of course, I had to sample things at various speeds to satisfy my curiosity. And that may actually be yet another good topic for a future podcast. The age-old flight test question, I wonder what happens if... But back to the PIO. I didn't even know what a PIO was before I attended test pod school. And now, not only do I recognize them, but apply recovery and mitigation techniques almost without thinking about it. Yet another example of the practical applications of test pilot knowledge. In that January podcast, I also talked about the benefits of using a simulator for mission rehearsals. And I asked listeners to give us their thoughts, not only of the value of doing those, But I further asked if the lesson learned was that we should do simulator mission rehearsals, how might you go about operationalizing that lesson into a policy, mandate, requirement, etc. So this month I want to share a few of those responses I got back. Kirk said, Mandate? No. Policy? Maybe. Just like the test safety process, these tools work best when the test team owns them, rather than just checking the box because it's required. And listener Les shared two events he thought were relevant. The first one from his time on the YF-23 program. The YF-23 first flight profile was simulated back and forth with a full control room and pilot in the simulator, including a simulated chase. The system safety engineer facilitated the exercises and injected various failures and emergencies during the flight, including some that were very imaginative. We ran through draft emergency procedures and made changes where needed. The most valuable return on investment, in my opinion, was developing communication skills, like terms, calls, what data was available, etc., and coordination between all parties. Personalities matter, and what you can expect from each person in the control room is important for the test conductor to know. We had a firm understanding of our abilities and what we could do and what we couldn't do. The first flight pilot was the motivator behind this effort, and it culminated in essentially a qualification to participate in the actual first flight. If you didn't get the training, you were not allowed in the control room. The second came from his time on the F-18 Super Hornet program. On the Super Hornet program, I was the test conductor on E-2, the propulsion and performance bird. We had to do some low-altitude, slow, PA configuration, propulsion testing that involved asymmetric power conditions. The chief pilot for E2 and I went down to the simulators at PAX and practiced throttle movement sequence to mitigate a VMC condition. 
I'm glad we did, because that sim clearly showed we could get into trouble fairly quickly. Unfortunately, I was later informed that after we both left the program, a junior flight test engineer and fresh test pilot school graduate were doing similar follow-on propulsion testing with various store configurations and departed the aircraft at low altitude. As it was told to me, he really should have ejected but managed to recover the airplane before hitting the water. I don't know all the details since I wasn't there, but the story as relayed to me was pretty scary. For some reason, that lesson learned was not disseminated. Now, in the realm of It's a Small World, the incident that Les described on that Super Hornet propulsion test, I was very familiar with as it occurred during my time at Pax River. In fact, I knew the details of that flight very well, as I had a front row seat, so to speak, as the safety photo chase pilot on that event. You know, one of the reasons I asked the question about operationalizing lessons learned, so they become part of policy, procedures, or requirement, was I thought it would be a way to try to ensure that the lesson doesn't have to rely on local knowledge or in worst case scenario, keep being relearned over and over again. Les went on to comment on this saying, how do you make it a requirement? I think the best way to do that is during the THA process. It should be a mitigation item. Medium and high risk tests should be simulated in some fashion, in my opinion. Even if simply sitting together on an intercom and having someone throw out various emergencies and scenarios. Answering the what ifs and what are you gonna do's is extremely valuable. And most everyone agreed that doing simulator mission rehearsals was a valuable thing. But there were challenges. Not every program has the facilities to connect a simulator, a flight simulator, to a control room and run a mission rehearsal that way. And if they do, there's definitely a cost. There's a cost in time and there's a cost in money. Now, we don't have time to cover all the responses I received, but thank you to everyone who provided feedback. And I have a feeling it is a topic we will encounter again. In fact, you might even hear a little bit more about the merits of simulator mission rehearsal from test team members in next month's episode. There are several events coming up, and calls for papers and registration information for those events can be found on the SETP, SFTE, and AIAA websites. I'll put in a plug for our North American Flight Test Safety Workshop coming up at the beginning of May. Also, do you have someone in your organization who has made a difference in safety? Well, we are currently accepting nominations for the Tony LeVere Flight Test Safety Award. Now, nominations are being accepted until the end of March, and more details can be found on our website, www.flighttestsafety.org. As always, thanks for listening. Next month, we will be talking with members from the Bell V280 Test Team who will share some of their lessons learned from that program. As always, we welcome your feedback on this episode and are always interested in what you would like to hear in future episodes. Until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.